In the opening verses of Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah finds himself standing in the midst of the temple at Jerusalem. King Uzziah has died. King Uzziah had been the greatest uh, leader of the Jewish nation for a very, very long time. And his passing led the people of Israel to a tremendous sense of insecurity and uncertainty about the future. And Isaiah finds himself perhaps grieving in the temple, perhaps having gone to the temple to pray, looking for some measure of comfort in the midst of his times. And he walks in to this building. He had to have felt very small standing there. At that particular time, the temple of Jerusalem was the largest man-made structure anywhere nearby. In fact, it was one of the largest structures on planet Earth at this particular time. Its massive pillars soared above Isaiah like giant redwoods. Its incredible gold filigreed ceiling and painted uh, surfaces would have stretched out above him like the canopy of a glorious heavenly space. Isaiah must have been in awe, as any normal person would be, upon entering the temple for the very first time. And so as he looks up, his knees would naturally weaken just a bit, his jaw would drop as he stared around and up, perhaps murmuring those words that are often murmured by young people when they enter a great space. Wow, this is big. This is really big. And then suddenly, Isaiah experiences something which actually collapses his knees altogether and sets his teeth to chattering. Suddenly, the air above Isaiah is filled with sound and substance. As he looks up above him and sees moving around through the space, huge, powerful supernatural beings the Bible calls seraphs. They are six-winged creatures. And with two of the wings, they are covering their faces. And with another set of their wings, they are covering their feet, which is a euphemism biblically for their private parts. And with the other wings, they are flying around the space at incredible thunderous speeds. And Isaiah is agog. He is awestruck in the presence of these beings. For at the sound of their thunderous voices, the doorposts and the thresholds of the temple shake until Isaiah is afraid that the whole roof is going to come down. Imagine an earthquake coming into this place right now and you're looking up and you're seeing those girders starting to shake and the roof, everything's trembling. This is something of the moment that Isaiah is living through as we read this text this morning. And the air is filling with smoke as if there is some huge consuming fiery presence there. It's filling with smoke. And now the word that comes to Isaiah's mind is not just big. It's wow, greater. These beings are even greater than the temple. These beings are greater than any human being I have ever seen. This is really something. Really something. And then, something happens which makes Isaiah fold down from his place on his knees 
down into a face-down position on the floor in abject terror. For he suddenly understands why these awesome angelic warriors have been covering themselves up. They have been doing it as an act of abject humility. These angels he's seeing are, these seraphs are the most colossal and cataclysmically powerful creatures that Isaiah has ever contemplated. And yet, as thunderstruck as Isaiah is by them, they are trembling in the presence of the vastly greater one who suddenly makes his presence known in the place. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, writes Isaiah. And just the train of his robe, which is to say just the thinnest part of the trailing veil of his majesty, entirely fills the temple. Are you getting this? I'm saying that the very edge, the tiny edge of his robe of majesty fills the greatest structure in this part of the planet. And at the sight, just a glimpse of the very edge of his majesty, the tiny corner of his being, the angelic host moving through the air, erupts into song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, they say. For the heavens and the earth are full of his glory. Which is to say that if you are plotting reality on a scale from oh my goodness to oh my glory, there is big And there is greater and then beyond all categories, there is God. This is something of what the Bible means when it says to us, God is holy. God is holy. I know that word has shrunk down in our understanding. We associate it with Dana Carvey's church lady or pinch-faced people or a narrow way of moving through life. But in its proper understanding and its biblical understanding, holiness is something altogether beyond that. On one level, the word holy simply means set apart. Set apart. As in different from or other than other things or people. When we talk about the other attributes of God, like we've been doing these past weeks, 
It is not all that difficult to speak of them in terms with which we have some working familiarity. So, for example, when we've described God as sufficient or good or trustworthy or loving, we've been able to describe him in terms of some human behaviors with which we are familiar. Isn't that right? We've been able to use analogies to human beings to describe him. But holiness is by its definition something different from, set apart from, other than human experience. Holiness is so much harder to take in. I saw an insect crawling across the floor of my study when I was preparing this message. I was getting up and walking down to the kitchen to get a uh, a Diet Coke. And the bug was going across the carpet. And I happened to walk right by the bug. I saw him as I went on my way. And when he saw me, he froze. Now, do you think he froze? Because he had any idea what he was meeting in me. No. He saw the edge of my shoe. And he stopped, aware that he had just encountered about the biggest thing he'd ever seen. Do you think that insect had any capacity to appreciate what it would be like to see all of me? Scary thought, I know. Moving through life at about three millimeters high, Could he have any capacity to understand what it is to move through life at six foot four inches tall? Could that little bundle of nerve endings in that little head of his possibly take in what it is to have a human mind, one that is capable of at least ostensibly conceiving of how to build a skyscraper and how to achieve travel to the moon and how to splice genes, could he begin to take in the magnitude of the being that was moving past him in that moment? Now, here's the thought I'm trying to impress upon you, and I think you've probably seen it. God is to me, God is to me, not as I was to the bug, but more like as I was to one of the subatomic particles that made up that bug. That's a better picture of the gap. God is to me, or to you, as we might be, to the tiniest, most infinitesimally small particle that makes up an insect's life. What I'm trying to say is that on the scale from blind and puny to brilliant and powerful, there is big 
and there is greater and then beyond all categories. There is God. There is God. When we say that God is holy, we are saying that he stands apart from us in every conceivable way. He stands other than, different from us, in wisdom and in power and in capacity, in a way that is simply mind-numbing. When we say that God is holy, we're saying that he has an intelligence and power beyond any description we have for it. But holiness also carries with it, with it this sense of superior character. Our English word holy comes from the Anglo-Saxon word helig, helig, which means whole or healthy. You've heard people say in the old, old days, that person looks very hale, right? Hale, healthy, helig, whole. Our word holy comes from this root. To say that God is holy is to say that he's not just intelligent and powerful at a level we can't imagine. He is also healthy in a way with which we have no normal experience. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer says that God is the absolute quintessence of moral excellence. He is infinitely perfect in righteousness, purity, and rectitude. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by simply thinking of somebody or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree of which we are capable. Next week, Mama Maggie Gobran is going to be here in the house. She's going to be leading worship with me at this service next week. She is the closest I know to holy. When I think human being holy, I think Maggie. She spends four hours in prayer before she does anything. And then she goes out and just washes the feet of the poor all day long. But Maggie would tell you that her, when she has been given a glimpse of God, she knows she's not even close to holy. And so Tozer says, we know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it, says Tozer. He may fear God's power. He may admire God's wisdom. But his holiness, in the sense of absolute health, he can't even imagine. Only, only the spirit of the Holy One, says Tozer, can impart to the human spirit the knowledge of the holy. I went to the hospital this past week, and I visited a friend of mine who has cancer. And he did not look well. He did not look well. How, how would I say he did not look well? Well, because I knew him before he was sick. And he didn't look anything like that right now. I knew that he did not look well and that he was not well because I've known lots of other people who did not have this disease, cancer. And they do not look like my friend looked when I saw him this week. But as I was driving home, this wild thought crossed my mind. 
What if I had never experienced life outside of the oncology ward? What if I had actually grown up in the oncology ward? What if everybody I had ever known was afflicted with cancer? What if I had it myself? Ravaged by illness, in terrible trouble, might I actually consider myself healthy? Might I actually sort of say, gosh, I'm a lot better off than that person with stage four down the hallway? Might I do that? Might I be terribly, fatally sick and consider myself well by comparison to others? This is the story that the Bible tells about us. And until we grasp this story, until we start looking at the newspaper, at our relationships, at our day-to-day life through the lens of this story, we're just always going to misdiagnose the problem and misjudge the need and the strategy for addressing the need. The Bible says to us, the book of Genesis, that humanity once lived with a great deal more intelligence, power, and health of character than we do now. This is the way the Bible begins. Living in communion with God, human beings were holy beings. I don't mean that they were perfectly holy as God alone is holy, but I mean they had more of his character, more of his capacity about them at the beginning than they have today. Human beings walked with God, they took care of the garden, and they loved one another. It was that simple. They walked with God, they took care of the garden, and they loved one another. This was the quality of life. And then our first forebearers, as you know the story well, turned their backs on God. They turned their backs on the source of wisdom, power, and health in their lives and figured that they would do better defining things on their own terms. Finding power, wisdom, and health their own way. And that original sin became a spiritual cancer in the creation, the Bible says. It ultimately corrupted human beings' minds, distorted their wills, so now they were using power in inappropriate ways, and it disfigured their character. And every human being since then, since those original ones, has grown up in the oncology ward. Every one of us, we've grown up in this world, afflicted with the disease. Many people think that we are intelligent enough to live without God. Many people believe that we are powerful enough to master this creation and do wonderful things um, without any real guidance from above. They regard themselves as healthy enough to merit heaven or certainly not so sick that they would ever merit hell Because even if they are not altogether well, they figure they're certainly better than those obviously sick people at stage four of the disease. And even ostensibly religious people have got this worldview covering their eyes. 
and, you, and this is how you know it. They will talk about God in the most casual, limiting terms. They'll speak of God as the big man upstairs. <laughs> you know, the big guy. I hope the big guy feels okay about this. The big guy? Have we any idea with whom we're, we're speaking or of whom we're speaking? People will sometimes, they'll show up in a place of worship as if they've just walked to a garden party. Annie Dillard says that they, they ought to, the ushers ought to be issuing crash helmets and lashing us to the pews lest this holy God suddenly decide to really make his presence felt. People today will speak of God in such trivializing terms. They'll, they'll speak of him as, as, as sort of a spiritual, spiritual Mr. Rogers. You know, kindly and relatively harmless. As Arthur Pink puts it, even many Christians will talk about God as if he were very much like an indulgent old man who himself has no relish for folly. He wouldn't go where you're going, but he leniently winks. He leniently winks at the indiscretions of youth. Ah, kids will be kids. That's the view that's become commonplace in our day. But now and then, the Spirit of the Holy One imparts to human beings a glimpse of His holiness. And the response of somebody who actually catches a glimpse of who God really is is to fall on their face in reverent awe, as Isaiah did. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, said Isaiah. For I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. In other words, <laughs> if I ever thought that I was going to justify myself on the basis of my wisdom and my power and my goodness, now that I've seen the Lord God Almighty, I know this. I'm ruined. I'm in trouble. I am without hope. And to find yourself in the presence of the holy God, as you and I one day will stand before that holy God and come there trusting that he's going to be enormously impressed with how wise and how powerful and how good we are. To go there with that attitude is like being a disease-carrying insect and suddenly looking up at the full height of God. A God who hates disease. That is our proper position. But for the grace of God, there go we. The Bible underlines that when it comes to virtue, there is big and great, and then there's God. 
And the, the scriptures teach that the response of holy God to sin, and I know this sounds dark and heavy and difficult, but I believe me, I'm sharing this with you because I've been touched and convicted by it every bit as deeply. And I think there's hope if you hang with me. But, but, but to, it's crucial we understand that the response of this holy God to sin is not an indulgent wink. It is wrath. It is wrath. Unless we think that this is simply the, the teaching of some crazy Bible Belt fundamentalists or some cranky Old Testament prophets, hear the words of Jesus on the topic. I tell you that you will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word that you have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. For the Son of Man, said Jesus, is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. Remember those beings, those angelic warriors Isaiah saw. And then he will repay each person according to what he's done. How dreadful it will be in those days, says Jesus elsewhere. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. Now, I know that when many people, many of us hear the word wrath associated with God, we want to run for the exits. Some of you tuned into this message are wanting to change the channel as fast as you can at this point. I understand that. I have felt that. We immediately think of the indiscriminate, uncaring, lashing out of an alcoholic parent at a kid. Or we think of the, the indiscriminate, violent destruction of, of, of terrorist religionists, perhaps. And one of the reasons why we so often cling to this Mr. Rogers understanding of God is because we so loathe this other picture we have of this Marquis de Sade God, who apparently delights in crushing people like bugs. But neither the Mr. Rogers God or the Marquis de God is the accurate picture of who God is. The Bible teaches. And James Bryan Smith helpfully writes on the topic when he says that in the same way that God's love is not a silly, sappy feeling, but rather a consistent desire for the very good of his people, so also the wrath of God is not a crazed rage but rather a consistent opposition to sin and to evil. It is a mindful, objective, rational response to what ails people the wrath of God is. God is not indecisive when it comes to evil. God is fiercely and forcefully opposed to the things that destroy his precious people. God is against your sin. Because God is for you and the people you influence. I love what N.T. Wright, the British evangelical scholar, says on this subject. The biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, 
and loving creator who hates, yes, hates and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation. And in particular, anything that does to his image, does that to his image bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving, writes right. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is not good or loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise. But God, as we've studied these past weeks, is all of those things. He is sufficient, he is trustworthy, he is good, and he is loving. And therefore, he moves against sin. God cares so much for people that he would actually elect to allow some of them who would not accept the healing he freely offers them to go to hell rather than have them infect others. How long could heaven remain heaven were it filled with sin-sick people unwilling to recognize their disease or to accept the cure offered to them? How long would it take for heaven to become hell for everyone else if God allowed it to be infested by insects too proud or blind to let God transform them into the creatures he knows they can be? The only requirement, the only requirement for someone to go to heaven is to recognize, as Isaiah did, that they are not even close to healthy. The only requirement is to recognize that you are an unclean person and without the touch of the great physician upon you, you have no hope. You, however, have hope. And anyone who opens themselves up to God's grace, has hope. The Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. His holiness like a consuming fire. Make no mistake that holiness will consume sin in the end. But in the meantime, God's holiness also purifies anyone who turns to him. Hear again the words of Isaiah. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for, purified. Have you let God touch you in this way? Have you recognized your need? Have you recognized your ruination and that of our world without God's grace touching us and changing us?
Do you need His purifying power in your life today? If your answer is yes, then He says, I bring you good news. I bring you great hope. Come unto me. Please pray with me. Holy and almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known. From you no secrets are hidden. Touch us who humbly turn to you today with that redeeming fire which burns so brightly upon the altar of Calvary. Cleanse us and heal us, we pray, that we may more perfectly love you, the people around us, and worthily magnify your holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.